Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sports and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in elite sports, helping athletes maximise their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. Today I'm very lucky to be speaking to Shane Lahan. Shane is currently working as an SNC coach with the Australian rugby team. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. I know uh, we've been having a little bit of WhatsApp tennis back and forth trying to trying to find some time. So at the moment, you are with the Wallabies, with the Australian rugby team, and you are in camp. So tell us, where, whereabouts in the world are you right now? Uh, currently, I'm in Coogee, so uh, just uh, on the beach there outside, uh, outside Sydney. Uh, so we've been here for a couple of weeks. Previous to that, we had five or six weeks in the Hunter Valley, a couple of hours north, three hours north uh, in New South Wales. And then prior to that, we were in New Zealand for, for three weeks for two tests uh, against the All Blacks over there. Okay, so, well, let's, let's start with that. Facing up to the All Blacks, what was that like? Uh, yeah, very, very exciting. Um, it's probably a little bit of that 14 or 15 year old in me that's just uh, excited to be at a, at a game of that magnitude. Um, also a pretty sharp learning curve, I guess, getting used to working uh, international rugby and, and games at that level. Um, it, it was a very exciting and rewarding experience though, to be, be involved in the build up for those test games. Yeah. And pretty uh, unique circumstances with isolation and we had two weeks of isolation in Christchurch before flying to uh, Wellington for the first test <clears throat> and then on to Auckland so um, quite unique circumstances as well. So are you guys is, are the Wallabies operating in a bubble at the moment you've got your the, the, the players and the support staff and you travel together? Yeah yeah and that that bubble I guess with the nature of the Covid situation has uh, the protocols have changed a couple of times in the time we've been on tour but essentially, we're trying to limit our contact with, um, with with anyone external. And I guess in a normal camp situation, you might get a little bit of time to go home on days off or down weeks. And that just hasn't been a possibility in, in this camp cycle. Uh, so, yeah, we're op- operating in a bubble and have been, have been from the start in various in ver- at various levels. OK, so uh, your role in that bubble as the SNC coach, um, maybe we'll talk about how, where do you fit? So, so in terms of the performance team or, the, or the, the coaching team that are with the squad, where, where, do, you, where do you lie in that uh, operation? Yeah, well, I'm definitely, <clears throat> sorry, I'm definitely the, uh, the rookie member at this level. So I'm working with two very experienced and, and well-regarded coaches in uh, John Pryor and Dean Benton, who are, who are two uh, industry leaders in, in uh, athletic performance for Rugby Union. So I'm definitely the junior member of staff here, um, but still doing an awful lot of coaching. Uh, I look after a lot of the, or facilitate a lot of the strength and power training, traditional strength and power training, helping out with uh, field logistics, conditioning, recovery. So it's a really uh, all-encompassing role, really. And then reporting into John and, and to Dean, who, who really guide the direction of the programme. So I'm guessing you guys are, you're on a two-week break at the moment. So you've had, you, you played the, uh, Argentina. You had a, what would maybe a recovery week. And now you're in a building week, I'm guessing, in, ahead to the next test. Yeah, we are. Well, this will be the last test of the weekend against Argentina of a, uh, of a six game block. So the majority of the physical work really has been, has been done. And we're on, I'm talking to you on the Wednesday before the test. 
So really the the big work would have been done on the Monday and Tuesday. So we're very much preparing the team now and coming off the intensity a little bit ahead of the game on, on Saturday. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to know uh, with us at international level. So what type of stuff would your guys be doing now the week in the run-up to the... What would they have done in the earlier in the week uh, as part of their preparation? What type of gym sessions? Um, the, the training week remains pretty consistent, really. The And the training intensity remains pretty consistent. The big thing that probably changes is the volume and the time on feet and the, the amount we do in the week. But, but the weeks stay largely co- consistent, really. Um, so Monday, we have our primary lower body strength day and a, a slower day on field, a kind of clarity, clarity day. Tuesday is our more physical training day, our, our big day on field, the contact work, etc., We've had a bit of a down day today, recovery focus, some formal recovery for the guys. We'll be a little bit faster tomorrow and then uh, a little bit of organization on Friday ahead of the test on, on Saturday. So, so the week has remained relatively consistent um, throughout, the, throughout the campaign, but the, the volume and total time has been modified depending on, on what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, so yeah, fairly, fairly logical approach to what's going on really in the week. What about the previous week after um, coming down off a match uh, at the back of a test? What, what, how would the week be structured differently? Yeah, well, I guess this week has been, uh, or the last bye week was a little bit different in that we trained, we kept the group together together, and we trained through. Uh, but previous to that, we had, after the Argent, first Argentina game, or sorry, after the last All Blacks game, we had a bit of time. Uh, we gave the boys a few days off just to mentally refresh, get away from the programme, and then went pretty hard at it for the last couple of days of that week. Uh, so I guess we've had what we call like reconditioning or, or tougher weeks, Um and then during this period, we've decided to have a to, to train through and, and just modify the intensity a little bit. Very good. And then another thing I was also I was curious about when you take that step up from club level to national level, who you're obviously bringing together a team, a squad of athletes who work with uh, with a number of different clubs, and with their clubs, they might have they're going to have different strength and conditioning coaches and maybe different priorities. And then when they come up to, to national level, you, you mentioned you're working with two coaches there. Um, how, who sets the, 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 the direction of what training you guys will be doing? Do they continue, is there a continuation of work they would be doing with their club? Or are they all at, at such a level that they can just slot into a new program at the, at the, with the national squads? Um, well, they, they, the nature probably athletes that get to this level is they probably are the more robust and resilient they are the, the top guys in the country but also it's a very integrated system here in australia probably very probably similar to the system in ireland really uh, which differs to maybe the french or the uk system and there's a lot of continuity and discussion all the time between the franchises and and the international team so each player would have a, an individual development plan which would be there'd be training continuation there all throughout the club season club season into international season and so you always try and develop or maintain certain stimulus that you're uh, in the international season and then when they go back into club rugby that there's continuity in the programs when they go back as well so it just saves that uh, that conundrum of guys jumping from completely separate programs uh, one to the other so it's quite an integrated system in australia uh, which i think benefits the athlete and probably as a practitioner in that environment is very beneficial as well because you're you're tapping into a broader system of coaches and intellectual property rather than just being out in an island on your own trying to solve the problems as best uh, as, as best you can brilliant so that kind of leads us nicely onto your we'll call it your your regular day job so what what, what when you're not working at international rugby what what do you do in your normal day job 
Yeah, well, my day today is at the Melbourne Rebels, a Super Rugby franchise, uh, Super Rugby team who play in that in that competition. Um, so my title there is lead strength conditioning coach, and I report into an excellent uh, head of performance there in Will Markwick, and and we have a very uh, very uh, young, enthusiastic, I think, progressive athletic performance team down there. Um, so my day to day role really is, you know, r- running the strength and power program for the Melbourne Rebels, uh, running conditioning programs, speed programs, uh, recovery interventions, uh, liaising with the head of athletic performance there on uh, training time, on training volumes, periodization of uh, of uh, on field loads, uh, that sort of that sort of work. Um, so yeah, I, I guess primarily my job is probably to make. Will's job a little bit easier and to and to look after the players at, at the ground level. Very good. Um, on that day to day, then you mentioned you know periodizing the program, monitoring load. So how how do you monitor the load of the of the the training that the athletes are doing? Uh, well, obviously GPS technology has has had a, a significant impact on that load monitoring strategies. Um, but then also some of the more like personal skills or interpersonal skills have, have come up there as well with just your ability to know athletes well and to and to get a good understanding of of where they're at. Uh, and with the nature of the Super Rugby competition, it's a little bit different to Europe in that there is on a, generally in a non-COVID environment there's a, a fair amount of travel in that competition so a lot of the time the the calendar and the fixture list would dictate your your periodization or your inter- intervention of training weeks there and how heavy or light they are if you're with the competition being in the past based across south africa south america japan uh, then where those fixtures lie and uh, the travel associated with them would have a, a fairly significant impact on on what your training week would look like yeah, I know that might that'll be uh, it'll be a little bit different in the post-COVID world, but but in the past that's been that's been the main problem to solve. Yeah, I remember uh, I did some work uh, with uh, back in 2008, going over and back to to, to Beijing for the for, for the games in Beijing, and mm. that was a big big logistical challenge. And that was going over once and coming back once, you know. Uh, never mind having to fly around the world into multiple continents for uh, throughout the season. So that is quite the challenge that you guys must face, having to do that from 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 all respect, all angles, really. Yeah, um, you mentioned the GPS there. I'm also uh, curious to know, uh, you know, strength and conditioning. It's you know, a lot of the work, work is going to be is going to be based in the gym, going to be based on the fields. Um, how much has technology changed for changed what you do or how you do, or do you still find that you're sticking to the basics with a little sprinkle of technology thrown in? Um, is it a, is it a dramatic change or a subtle change? No, I don't think a dramatic change. And I, I think the the mistake is probably to, or one of the errors which I've made as well, is to get lost in the technology. And really what I think the technology should be doing is facilitating more time for better coaching and maybe for better reflective practice on your coaching. It should be taking some of that some of that legwork out of manually collecting data, recording data and storing data, and then trying to interpret it. Um, so, so we have some very... Um, we have some great technology partners who I work quite closely with to try and make the day job a little bit easier, essentially of collecting and analyzing that data to really free up the the art of coaching and, and that process. Um, so it has changed undoubtedly, uh, but I try not to get lost in it and try and make it work for me to, to free up and spend more time maybe on the basics of coaching and teaching. 
that's really interesting to hear you say because a couple of my other guests have said have said similar things this seems to be a very consistent message that's coming through uh, from anyone I'm speaking to is you know do simple things well don't get too bogged down making things complicated you need to be able to deliver uh, uh, simple enough messages to to coaches or to athletes that you're working with you can't just drop a huge data set on their lap and expect them to no, it, exactly and I think having information that you can act on quickly as well is, is a key there. If uh, if you have to wait 24 or 48 hours uh, in order to get some information back, then you you might have missed the chance there to have a meaningful intervention. Uh, so it's really having systems and technology that facilitate that decision-making process and the swiftness of that process rather than having highly complex systems that, that take time to return information. Very good. So on that, then, and uh, how much of your with your your regular day job, how much of it is office based, and how much of it is in the gym or out in the fields? Uh, I would say very little is office based. Good. Well, definitely a proportion, but um, there's definitely more time on feet and running around than there is uh, there is in the office. No, look, uh, I guess in a normal day, you're definitely spending two hours to three hours on the pitch. By the time you have everything set up. Uh, facilitated the session maybe any rehab sessions that are going on separately it's probably another hour and a half to two hours in the gym by the time you get through uh, the team plus rehab athletes and then there's probably an hour and a half maybe of planning analysis on out of that day so I would say there's definitely a portion of my day spent at the, at the desk uh, but a lot of that is is analyzing how the day has gone or reflecting how the day has gone preparing for the next day and maybe just engaging with your colleagues and how how we can make things a little bit better next time but but it's definitely the vast majority of my day is spent coaching being active and and facilitating session uh, sessions and on on one of those typical days what uh what's what's the favorite what's your favorite aspect of your job what do you enjoy doing the most um i I really enjoy anything that's strength and power orientated so whether that's the speed sessions on the pitch or uh anything strength and power related in the gym obviously nature rugby union athletes as you probably have some the t- type of athletes that are attracted to that sport or go well in that sport generally are are pretty gifted in that area so i get quite excited when i see guys uh producing big big outputs or running fast that's probably the most exciting part for me but i, I try and keep a you know a real holistic view of performance and ultimately the goal of them is the goal is for them to be good rugby athletes and good rugby players rather than just rather than just good in the gym um so definitely keeping involved. I, I enjoy, you know, facilitating the logistics of the field sessions also because you get a chance to to really see whether those uh, interventions you're putting in place are maybe starting to have an impact in in the technical tactical sense when they go on to team sessions. Sure, that sounds great. Um, how much then? So maybe at the national level, you said you've got the most robust and and gifted athletes are making their way up. When you're working at club level, perhaps maybe but people who are just breaking into the club level, do you find, um, and I guess this might be different from country to country, the, the, um, that the athletes that are coming through, are they well-versed in the gym? Are they, are they competent in the gym? Or do you find that you have to go back and start coaching them and, and getting them to where you want them to be? Uh, I think that probably is different country to country. There's not probably the formal academy systems in Australia in any sport, not just in rugby union, as there is in... Um, say rugby academies in in Ireland or soccer academies, rugby academies in the UK. So I think maybe you have you, you've a bit more of a mixed 
mixed bag in terms of experience in formal training application. What you do have in a country like Australia, it's a very active country generally. The weather facilitates that. It's a very sports-orientated country. So what you do have is good movers, guys who are used to playing multiple sports, used to being outside, naturally probably relatively high fitness levels. Um, so maybe coming out a better base than that than what you might get in, you know, in, in some European countries, but definitely uh, maybe less versed in some of the formal kind of gym training, um, some of the most, more formal field training, speed sessions, conditioning, et cetera, than you might have in, in Europe. Very good. And could, so again, you, you mentioned uh, academy setups and, and things like that. So maybe we might take a little bit of a jump back then and, and, and see how you got started in this career. So it's obviously awesome where you are now, but for anyone who's listening who might be starting out, can we go back a few years? Where, where did you go to college or what's, what did you study in order to, to get working in this area? Um, well, when I finished school, I went to uh, UCC and I initially studied art. I did a history and geography degree. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I, uh, I knew I loved sport, but probably at the time I, I didn't see it or consider it as a viable career path. I think that's probably changed now in Ireland in the, in the time since I finished school, um, where there's, there's much more uh, visibility maybe of, of coaches and much more course availability. Uh, during that period when I was at UCC, I was playing sport poorly. Well, that's what every strength conditioning coach has in common probably is that we're all failed, failed athletes. So I was trying to train myself to be as good as I can and had a general interest in, in athletic performance. Started doing a little bit of work with UCC, which led on to a little bit of experience with Munster. Um, and through that experience, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is, this is where, what I want to do. So I had a year left at my arts degree finished it out and took an internship at Ulster at the end of that. And then from there, went to the UK to Loughborough University to study sport and exercise science at Loughborough. Uh, during that period, I was taking on multiple internships, working with the, at the time, the Leicester Tigers sub-academy. They're kind of under 16 and below, uh, in and out with Munster when I came home, did a little bit of work on, on Ireland camps with Liam Hennessy, who's a bit of a legend of sports science over there. And one of my early mentors. Um, and then following the completion of my degree, uh, and sorry, alongside my degree, I was doing a lot of coaching at the university level with amateur athletes. Finished my sports science degree and an internship opportunity came up at Leicester Tigers. Completed a year there in 2009, 2010 in an unpaid role, which luckily led into my first paid position at the end of, uh, the end of that year. Uh, so I started as a junior S and C coach in 2010 at, at Leicester Tigers. Okay, yeah. So you, th- those it seems to me like yeah, what you say there. You had a lot of internships, so building a lot of work experience, work placements. Uh, what what advice would you give to anyone starting out now? Would you advise following that route? I would. I think the exposure to how elite teams operate is obviously very important. That's the environment that you want to get into. But really coaching at any level is is valuable. I think probably the mistake that a lot of you know, young practitioners make and certainly interns that I've had in the past is that uh, they're only viewing work in the elite environment as, as relevant experience, which, which really isn't true. I mean, the nature of, say, working with the Wallabies or working with your local rugby club is you probably have the same range of personalities. It's just that the ability is different. So your ability to to coach those guys and relate to those guys, you're still learning valuable lessons. If it's uh, with, you know, if it's with the 
group of kids or your local football team or your local hurling team or your local uh, rugby team. So while I was gaining experience and insight into the professional environment, I, I think what really stood to me was developing at my coaching techniques, making a lot of errors uh, and learning from those errors at, at the amateur level. Um, obviously those, if you make mistakes in a professional environment, they tend to be more costly early on. So uh, I, I think coaching at any level is, is really valuable. So that would be my, my key message. I think to anyone who wants to pursue a career in this industry is yes, you know, seek out um, experience and exposure to the elite level, but, coaching at any level is extremely valuable I, and I know say when I'm recruiting interns or recommending staff if I've seen that they've you know been regularly coaching and working on their craft at, at any level then I think that's more valuable than someone who's you know maybe just completed their their undergraduate and done two months at a professional environment and not had that consistency of exposure to to coaching you mentioned there um, in your day-to-day -day at the moment and also in your, in, your, in your role with the Rebels that you spend a lot of time reflecting on what's happened during the day. Is that something you've always done is that, or is that a skill you've picked up later in your career? No, it's probably something that I, I probably really honed in on the last probably year, year to year and a half. Um, and Dean Benton here is the head of athletic performance is, is big on driving that among, among staff in the Australian system which is really, really kind of driven at home for me. Um, and I guess as I referenced earlier, I think it's probably easy to get maybe lost in, well, you need to have good technical knowledge and you need to stay abreast of the research and you need to be on top of uh, technological innovations. I think it's very easy to uh, just go through coaching days and not really reflect on your practice there. And ultimately, I think coaches, coaches are teachers. We're trying to we're trying to influence the learning environment and we're trying to cause longitudinal changes in, in behavior and application. And really you can only uh, assess if you're doing a good job of that by, by reflecting on your coaching practice. Uh, so that's definitely something that I probably took for granted at the, at, at the start and I'm now orientating more time on more time on that. Yeah. I, I would say the deeper I go into my career, the more I realize that the, actual act of coaching and teaching is my biggest work on rather than, you know, rather than understanding some new technology or keeping on top of every research paper that comes out. I think it's really developing the coaching and the teaching element is the, is the key component. That's really interesting. I know I'm just reflecting on myself as, as you say that and I know you know sometimes you're doing a course or if you're if you're doing something and at the end you have to complete a reflective log it seems like a bit of a chore at the time but they're the things that really help you when you you know when maybe when you come back to work on your CV if you've got even just some notes scribbled down on how things went what you did that becomes really invaluable uh, to to help you progress going forwards to, 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 to learn from those experiences. So it is, I think it's definitely, definitely worthwhile not to be viewed as a, a chore or something extra that needs to be done. It's kind of integral to what you should be doing. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think the, the key there is to have, you know, a simple and time effective process there. So it doesn't have to be sitting down in the night and at nighttime and writing out a 500 word or a thousand word piece on that. It's literally just some short notes on, you know, if, if the day went well, why did it go well? If it didn't go, and that's the other thing, I think it's easy to reflect sometimes when you have, you know, poor days or it hasn't gone well or the session's been poorly run or not been well received by your athletes. 
I think we probably all critically reflect during those sort of periods because it, it hurts a little bit, but rarely do you probably do the same when, when you've had a good day and are you reflecting on your positive practice? What did you do well there that, that caused the session, the session energy to be good for the athletes to be engaged? Did you notice, did you observe learning and uh, retention of information that you put in, in, in previous sessions? I, I had an interesting example of this actually recently where uh, we were away with the super rugby team. And I use a, a common cue for accelerations, uh, which is split the floor. When I mean for employing kind of force to the floor when you're accelerating. I'd been using this cue for three months, four months, five months maybe. And uh, midway through one of these acceleration sessions, one of the more, more switched on guys in the squad said to me, it's like, I have no idea what you mean when you say split the floor. I was thinking, wow. I was like, so I asked around a couple of guys in the squad, loads of guys didn't didn't understand the message i was trying to give there so I, I obviously haven't reflected on that session and it just made me realize i hadn't gone through a reflective process there where i've actually checked learning and retention and if the athlete understands i've i've just thought because the it seemed the session had run well at the time that the learning was coming through but uh, it was a real wake up to me that i need to be really like reflecting on the information the cueing uh, how the environment is set, how the logistics are set up. Am I checking in with players to see if they understand what, what I'm trying to communicate? Uh, so that was definitely a lesson for me and made me realize that, you know, that that self-reflection process and reviewing your, your coaching day is a critical piece of, of improvement, both for you and for the athlete. That's, yeah, again, that's also really, really interesting. It made me think, um, I teach a module to our, to our first years, just the S&C one. It's an introduction to the gym and, and starting to learn the teaching process. And I'm always telling them that they need to have, you know, they, most of them will come in and if they try to teach an exercise, the students will have a couple of cues, maybe one or two cues for the exercise that they're trying to do. But I'm always saying to them that you have a bank of cues for the same thing, like have different ways of giving the same information, because if you have one cue that's not working with an athlete, repeating it over and over again is not going to get you any further with them. You have to be able to put it to them a different way. So what you're saying there to, you know, to, to be able to reflect and observe and, uh, and realize maybe that the cue you're using um, isn't the most effective cue have something in reserve that you can fall back to. You seem you were lucky that you had yeah. a, 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 an athlete that was willing to speak up and, and say it to you. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing on that too, Bruce, is um, oftentimes does it need a cue in the first place? Have you created an environment where the constraints of you know, the drill you've set up or the way you've created the session is doing the, the teaching for you, doing the learning for you? And, and you know, it's often, a, I, I guess this is part of the self-reflective process for me where I'm probably a bit too much of a talker at times, you know, and actually reflecting, do I need to give information here? Like, are, is the, am I creating another, another piece of noise here for the athlete instead of just creating an environment or a drill situation, which is doing the teaching, the teaching for you. And neither of those strategies is wrong. It's just a case of like really reflecting and saying, how did you design the session? What was, what was going to be the, the driver of change there? Was it going to be your intervention as a coach? Was it going to be, how the constraints of the session were set up to derive the learning and having a clear plan and then reflecting on that afterwards to see did, did it have did it have the desired impact um and that's probably something that i haven't always done you know it's easy to get caught up in new training methodologies and training technologies and uh, rather than maybe reflecting on what you're doing already day to day and seeing if you can improve it yeah one of my other guests called it brilliant basics just make sure to do the brilliant basics and then start to layer things on top of that uh, don't mm -hmm. make it too complicated too soon. 
Okay, so in your uh, when we were discussing your career, we had talked to just up until when you joined Leicester. I think you said it was around 2009, 2010. Yeah, that was a time when they were uh, they were a real powerhouse, and I have to I have to uh, I'm going to have a little disclaimer here at the moment. Uh, I hold a long term grudge against uh, Leicester, um, <laughs> which which stems back from 2002 when Neil Back knocked the ball out of Peter Stringer's hands uh, in the last couple of minutes of the game. I, I haven't quite been able to get over that, um, so I'll try and park uh, park that. Um, that grudge while we talk about Leicester here, but how much did that your 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 time? You spent a good bit of time at Leicester. Uh, how 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 formative was that for you? How did that shape who you are now as a strength and conditioning coach? Yeah, well, well, firstly, I'd say uh, I held that same grudge, obviously being a monster man, until they gave me my first break in professional sport, <laughs> and then I was pretty quick. I was pretty quick to forget it then. Um, I, being at Leicester was an amazing experience for me. I probably went in there on the tail end of them being the real dominant team in in the UK, just as Saracens were on the way up, really. Uh, so I'd had some involvement. 2010-11, actually, is my first uh, first time with the senior team. I'd done some work with the, the sub-academy team the, the years before that. Um, but I was pretty privileged that my first uh, three years in professional sport were all grand final appearances at Twickenham and... Uh, you know, decent runs to quarterfinals in in Europe, uh, which I've learned since is is not the way it always goes. It's not always as as easy as that. Uh, although we didn't win a Premiership until 2013, which is actually the last the last one they've won. Uh, but it was it was an amazing experience. We had a very um, deep roster of high quality players, but more than that, the the environment there was was like really hard nosed. Essentially, Leicester's a you know. A, a tough working class city which is reflected probably in the rugby team probably not too dissimilar to, to Munster actually um, in, in that regard but the the standards of the general standards standards of discipline there were were very high which Richard Cockrell primarily drove but also the historical culture of the club um, and anything other than winning really wasn't uh, you know wasn't acceptable Um so yeah, so it was pretty exciting to be involved during that time. And you say that that the, the kind of culture at the club at the time of very very high standards. It wasn't just winning. That that kind of filtered down to to everything that you did, or everything that the athletes did in the club as well. Is that right? Yeah, it did. As so, there was. I mean, um, I still have a good good relationship with Richard Cockrell. He would really drive standards on that. If you wore the wrong socks in the gym, you were you were sent home. If you there was no if you were late, then that was it. You were out for the day. Uh, so it was pretty like really really drove some of those behaviors and, and for me I think what I've learned since I think that's what culture is really it's the behaviors that you repeatedly do and at the time uh, it, it wouldn't have worked everywhere it definitely wouldn't have worked everywhere if you roll that same philosophy into some of the other environments I've been in then I, I don't think it would be as successful before that team at that time in that environment in that competition then uh, then I think it was really applicable interesting i was listening to uh, to another podcast where rio ferdinand was saying similar things you know that the, the culture was driven by the by the uh by the athletes at the club standards were set and anyone who didn't didn't uh, come up to their anyone who fell short of those standards just didn't last long at the club and it made it, it, in in their circumstances at, at manchester united it made for a, a high high perform a very very high successful high performance environments but you're right yeah. i think i agree with you there you it's not it's not going to be a one fits all at every club that no. you go to or every team that you go to 
Um, but it is interesting to hear the similarities that, that are there. Richard Cockrell, yeah, no nonsense approach there uh, in his in his coaching style. Have you adopted that yourself, or have you blended other aspects in with us? No, I think, and to be fair, I think uh, Cockrell's probably been adaptable too. He's gone to Edinburgh and, and obviously been in a different environment and seems to have seems to have evolved his his practice there. Um, no, I think I probably made the mistake at the start, really, of kind of carrying exactly some of the practices and, you know, both application of strength conditioning principles and uh, and some of those behavioral aspects and kind of transporting them into a new environment without really taking stock of what the, the pre-existing culture was. So I think that's a bit of a mistake there, really. I think you have to spend time understanding you take take the positives, take some of the take some of the principles that you think are are applicable, but I think it's also important to to gauge an understanding of the environment you're going in uh, and before you start implementing too much of your your pre-existing prejudices essentially yeah so i'd say well i'm 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 guessing here you know you were fairly young in your career when you when you went to leicester but then um after how long you, you were with leicester before you moved to australia <laughs> uh so i was with leicester five five and a half years from five 2010 years, yeah, to, so you're... yeah much more experienced by the time that you left. So um, when you when you did make that move to a new team, when you were more established in your career, did you have to take, did you take time to, to learn about the new team, take stock, or did you just jump in at the deep end and figure it out as you went along? Um, I jumped in at the deep end and probably learned from that experience that that's probably not the way to do it, is that uh, <laughs> that was my first kind of major in like transition in professional, professional sport. And what I definitely learned from that is as I referenced previously, I should have taken more time to understand you know, how the club was operating, how the team wanted to play, the nature of the competition. I would say the, the um, playing squad was, was younger generally than what they've been more experienced and that Leicester team that I was in, uh, whereas the Rebels were in a, a different stage of their evolution. And probably through that process, I learned that uh, definitely when transitioning environments with the the smart decision is to step back a little bit, observe here what's working and what's not working before before coming in hard with interventions. So no, that's not what I did, but I uh, I definitely learned from I definitely learned from that experience. You do it differently next time. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think the big thing is yeah, and, and this may change, but I hear coaches talk a lot about you know philosophy and SNC philosophy, and and really what I learned from that experience is probably that my only philosophy really is to best support the the team and the organization. And, and that's different each place you go. So rather than coming in staunch with my own views of how an athletic performance program should be rolled out, I think it's important to gauge an understanding of what's the team trying to achieve? Where is it in that evolution? And then how can you facilitate to help solve some of the problems that are, um, that are present? Okay, so what about relationships then with managers and other coaches that work there? How important are they in getting to grips with all of that? Um, how long do you think, well, it's not how long does it take to develop those things. That's, that's a, a, a very vague question. But how do you work on establishing those trusting relationships so that they trust you, you trust them, and you're all working in the same direction? I think, I think those relationships are, are massive. Um, and they essentially, I think they give you direction essentially on how, how you're going to operate and how you're going to help develop players to support the, the style of play that the coach is trying to implement. Um, so I think some of the key things there are genuinely showing an interest in, in the rugby program, um, which I know seems obvious, but to be honest, at times in my career, I didn't always do this. And Tony McGann, who was 
former Munster coach who was the, the head coach of the Rebels when I arrived uh, really drove this home for me. Sometimes I would be not watching the rugby session inside in the office preparing the gym session for the afternoon and he uh, pulled me aside one day and was like, how, how do you how do you know how the athletes are feeling? How can you relate to, to them if, you're, if you haven't seen them train, if you haven't seen what, what they've been through on the day? And, and that really resonated with me. Um, since then, I make a point of you know watching and being present uh, for as many rugby sessions as I can, attending as many team meetings as I can, being in dialogue with the technical coaches about individual players and game style and technical tactical issues that they're seeing, because ultimately that's what you're there to support. It's it's worth very little if guys are PBing on their bench press and there's no transfer to to what they're doing on the field. So um, I, I think showing a genuine interest in both player development and in supporting supporting the coach to implement his game style game model is is pivotal and i think that's a a fundamental cornerstone of building good relationships with with coaches and with and with other staff members yeah it's interesting i think uh, it sounds like you do take that holistic approach that you mentioned earlier on it's uh, it, it's uh, it's coming across loud and clear there it used to be i used to always think that if you wanted to really know what was going on with an athlete or with the team at the time you had to go and pick the brains of the physio or maybe the massage therapist because they had the most the most time hands-on there see and, and and they got to know the deep dark secrets of what was really happening but it sounds like you might be the man to speak to there as well sometimes <laughs> well, I, I do think that is that's that's a pertinent point because as maybe the physios might be a little bit more, but generally uh, medical staff, athletic performance staff do have the highest contact hours um, with players, and, and really you can get to, you can get an appreciation of how they're feeling, what they think is working, what they think is not working, uh, and if you can connect that with some of the information you're getting from the technical coaches and you know feeding appropriate information both ways, then I think you end up with a more uh, holistic understanding of where the athlete is at and how you can help that individual to to perform better. Um, so those relationships are key, both with the athletes and with coaches, with medical staff. Um, you know, in order to maximize maximize your impact with with players and maximize your impact on affecting the team winning at the weekend. If you're operating in a in a silo and you're not engaging and you're not having meaningful conversations. Uh, across departments then I think it's very difficult to be truly impactful yeah that's really good advice um, on that then so uh, in your in your, your your role with the Rebels I'm sure you're the, you're the lead strength and conditioning coach you have relative freedom to implement new ideas and feed into the overall team strategy how does that differ then when you move up to international uh, yeah well I guess I'm, I'm looking at the Rebels and that I've got a very good working relationship with Will Markwick who's our head of performance and uh, Dave Vessels who's the head, who's the head coach uh, and also the other coaches and, and staff there um, so the way I view my role at the Rebels really is that uh, Will's, Will's ultimately the decision maker but we have some good robust debates about interventions and you'll seek my, my opinion before ultimately a um, Deciding on the course, uh, I guess at international level, this is my first exposure to international rugby. And as I said, I'm working for two very experienced uh, practitioners at, at this level, uh, two real um, industry leaders in athletic performance or rugby union. So my job really here is to support them as best as I can, really, and uh, and support the head coach and facilitate um, smooth running of the program really in anywhere I can. So probably less decision making more doing more coaching um but that's okay too i'm enjoying that and i've, I've learned a lot from from my experience working 
working with the new head coach and then working with very experienced staff across obviously in the athletic performance department, but also a medical team and uh, technical coaches. I guess, like, I don't want to diminish to, to, to put a label on it, but it's, it's almost like this is another internship, an opportunity for you to learn and go back to your other job and be even more effective. No, definitely. Um, that's, uh, it's not being diminutive at all. There's definitely been, been elements of that. Um, uh, Dean is, Dean's excellent. They're very good at holistically thinking about performance. Um, and I've learned an awful lot from him over the time I've been in Australia. And then John Power is a real pioneer in the application of some of the Bosch principles to, to rugby union. Um, so I, I said, I've been looking after more of the traditional uh, aspects of strength and power training, and then being able to, to observe and learn both how these guys coach and, and what they coach and what they believe is important. So no, it's definitely been, uh, it's, it's been humbling in some ways. I've learned a lot and, uh, it's been a great learning experience, which is, which is ultimately what, um, you know, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, super. So then looking, I suppose, looking to the future, in, in the immediate future, you'll, you'll get this next test match over and done with, and then it's back to the regular job. What about the medium term future now that you have a taste for international rugby? Is is that where you're aiming? Is that where you'd like to go? Uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely very exciting. I also enjoy the day-to-day of the, the club competition, I admit. Um, yeah, obviously it might be a one-off. I'm not sure yet, but obviously there, if there was an opportunity to combine those roles going forward, then that would be something I would definitely like to do. But uh, I, I don't know if that's the case at the minute. It's just to enjoy the experience, what it is, and then back for, I'll miss the first chunk of preseason with the Rebels. Uh, so Blake West, who's um, our assistant at the Rebels, is uh, taking care of all my roles down at the Rebels and doing a great job down there. So I'll, I'll come back and, Maybe I might be, uh, might be helping him put down the cones after Christmas. <laughs> You'll owe him a bit then. <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe, you know, it must be very tempting to be part of a, a World Cup squad and, you know, a contenders in, in, in a World Cup competition. That would be very, very tempting. Yeah, if that opportunity came up, then that would be, uh, that would be very exciting. Um, but I said, the, I think rather than, you know, uh, chasing positions or titles or role, I just feel if I'm constantly focused on self-improvement and being a better coach and helping athletes get better than, than uh, those opportunities will arise naturally as they have in my career so far by, by trying to get a little bit better at what I do. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting talking to you. I in my own career I have uh, I grew up playing rugby all the way through school and and all and into into university. Uh played it poorly, like you say. Um but uh, enjoyed playing it. And then uh, in my professional career, it's one of the few sports I actually haven't got to work with. Um I've never had the opportunity to work with rugby. Um so it's been really 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 interesting talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you all day. There's loads of questions I want to ask. I have one more actually. One of my students uh asked me to ask what was it like facing uh, being part of a team that was facing down a hacker yeah it was uh it was quite cool um we'd rehearsed the strategy afterwards where we went uh, left foot forward and formed a, the players formed a boomerang to uh to face it um to kind of deflect that energy back essentially was the message there from from us and then as a staff we we lined up on the sideline and had a, a similar formation so um it was cool to experience experience it and also cool to be part of a response to that on the Australian side. And then uh, I made sure, I've been practicing, I'm on the verge of becoming an Australian citizen anyway, so I've been practicing the anthem. So I made sure I was uh, didn't miss a beat there or miss a chord and I was blasting that out poorly as well, post uh, or pre the hack, I should say. 
Epic, epic. Shane, I think we'll wrap it up there. It has been it has been fantastic speaking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think there's been some great uh, great chat and some real good nuggets of information for the for the listeners. So thank you very very much. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, look for anyone who's who's thinking of uh, pursuing this career. I think again, I would reiterate that coaching exposure at any level is is the key. There, you know, develop your coaching skill. It's probably something you, if you want to do this career, you'll. So I'm uh, 11 years into my professional career and I'm, it's still a massive work on for me. So the, the sooner you start on that process, uh, the better. Excellent message to end on. Best of luck at the weekends. Thank you very much. You, uh, hope it goes your way this time. A draw last time, a win would be nice to see out the this, this season. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. I've been away from home for 160 days. So to finish on a win and then go back and enjoy Christmas would be would be fun. That would be, uh, you would be winning if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you very much Shane cheers thank you Bruce thank you